Civil Rights Act of 1964 forbade discrimination uh, in voting on the basis of race. What happened in the movie Selma happened the next year, in 1965. Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, the SCLC decided to, uh, they chose Selma, Alabama, as kind of the um, focus for a voter registration campaign in, all, in, in order to heighten the fact that that discrimination was still happening. And the movie follows about a three-month period, very tumultuous, during which a march was assembled to go from Selma, Alabama, which is a small town, to the capital of Montgomery, Alabama, which is approximately 54 miles, to heighten awareness to that and to leverage the people of the United States, the government of the United States, to mean what they said. And if you see it all, and if you follow history at all, you know that there um, was a, a level of resistance that some would say our nation has kind of grown from. But isn't it pertinent that that movie comes out, and the celebration comes out uh, about 50 years later, and then you have incidents like Ferguson and Staten Island and Cleveland, to remind us that there is still a whole lot going on. And so there's an obvious theme in the movie, some about racial bigotry and reconciliation. But you know what? There's more, and we're going to talk about more than that today. We're going to talk about that, but we're going to talk also about some really significant themes that come out of the life of Martin Luther King Jr., who happened to be a significant follower of Jesus Christ, ordained Baptist uh, clergyman. I'm going to invite you to several places in the Bible, a lot, most of them in the New Testament today. If you have access to a Bible, I encourage you to take a look. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got free copies for you. They're at the Welcome Center. You can grab those anytime. You can use them for the day. You can keep them. They're a gift to you. We want you to see what God says personally. And um, so in the, in the New Testament, in, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, if you've got a chance to look that up, we'll start there, show you some other places too. There's a difference between external assent about something being true, even external law about something being obeyed, and internal reality. And when it comes to the area of prejudice, there's a big difference between externally saying it doesn't exist, acting like it doesn't exist, and what is the state internally, uh, Linda Baines Johnson as the president enacted that law in 1964, but it became very, very clear that prejudice isn't just legislated away. That what we, the way we look at people, the way we think of people, how we treat people isn't just a basis of making statements or having laws. God's going to say, that's not how it changes. How it changes is it changes from the inside out from something that happens in the hearts. Avenue Q, which is very irreverent, in its musical has a song called Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. And in that song, just some of the lyrics go like this. Look around and you will find no one's really colorblind. Maybe it's a fact we all should face. Everyone makes judgments based on race. If we could all just admit that we are racist a little bit, even though we all know that it's wrong, maybe it would help us get along. There's an internal equality that God, the maker of us, has established and calls us to understand is true and to live out, but it happens from the inside out. So here's a statement that shouldn't surprise you, but it's found in Galatians chapter 3. It has to do with those who stand before Jesus Christ, which, by the way, you all of us will. You either stand before him and kneel before him by your volition now and celebrate him later, or you'll stand before him eventually and reckon with who he is and what his reality. This is what Galatians 3 says. If you've got to take a look at verse, the end of the chapter, verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Okay, so there's a statement there. And this is a statement for people who have recognized where they stand with God and that they need Jesus Christ. Once that happens... We are restored to the path of what God intended us as humans to be. In the rightful position before the one who made us and the rightful position among each other. So that much is true. 
Now, here is what the implication of that is in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Can I just stop there for a second? Most of the people who would have read this were from Jewish heritage, and that phrase right there would have messed them up. Because there was a big difference between a Jew and a Gentile is what the word Greek is referring to. A huge difference. One was the chosen people of God. One, one was a group that was special to God. One was the one that salvation was intended to. And right now, all of a sudden, Paul out of nowhere kind of says, here's what's true. When you come into the right relationship with God, the whole purpose the Jewish people existed and were chosen were to be a vehicle through which a provision would be made, one provision for all mankind to, to level the playing field and to make us stand and understand who we are and who we need to be in God. When that happens... All of a sudden, all the distinctions cease. And so he says, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So here's, here's the fact that God just wants to make sure we understand. That there is an equality, if you are a human being, you are special and you are set apart because you are an image bearer of the Most High God. That did not change after we sinned. In Genesis 9, 6, it still says that we are all bearers of the image of the, of the Almighty. As such, we are elevated in all of creation by simply by being an image bearer because the breath of life has been breathed into you, because you have a living spirit within you and a soul you, by virtue of that, are elevated by God in an equal sense. There is also, this is true, that universally we are carriers of the disease. And universally we are sinners and broken before God. Regardless what the background is, regardless what the upbringing is, regardless what the education is, it doesn't solve that innate problem. We are equally sinners equally sinners if you're sitting next to somebody whose addiction is far worse than yours in your eyes if you're sitting across the uh, the way from somebody who may have taken somebody's life you are equally guilty and broken we are broken equally here's another statement that is true that god has to say in that in that very condition we exist that the almighty powerful god is who is love carries for every single image bearer of his an unquenchable, unending love and passion to have a relationship with that being. There is an affection for him. You are cherished, cherished by God himself. You're not just tolerated. You're not looked at offhandedly. You are pursued actively by God who says more than anything else, this is a fact, that the God of the universe, more than anything else, what he wants is he wants you to be restored into the relationship you were made for. It's his highest priority. And that is true universally. Every image bearer is under that love of God. And every single one of them is offered a provision and everyone is offered to be restored in a way that happens outside of their own resources outside their own performances, outside their abilities or their pedigree or or their degree of sin. Regardless what that is, outside their, their capacities or their level of education or the sincerity of their heart. Every single one who is restored is restored because of something that's outside that. It's given to them as a gift. Purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. It is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. It's a reality. It's a universal offer given by God, but it is a universal level playing field of where we stand. And that's why it says in several places, just like we saw, but here it is stated in Colossians chapter 3, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, which is referring to the, the rituals attached to the practice of religion and even how sincere people are about it, how fully they engage in it. 
It uses words like whether they are barbarian or barbaric or Scythian. Those words are referring to groups outside the influence of the, of the Greek world at the time and the Roman Empire. But, and so some are uncivilized and backwards in some uh, underdeveloped nations. Scythian is actually a racial term that was looked at by in some quarters as having great disdain. Think in your high school or your community of the race, whichever one it might be, that is most looked at with disdain, where people most have question marks about them, most have an idea about something negative about them, that's what's being said here. In this new life, it doesn't matter if they're that person, whether they're slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Historically, Christianity is at the forefront, biblical Christianity has been at the forefront of anti-discriminatory laws taking effect, of the place of women and the value of women, the value of race, the, the, the destruction of caste systems. As I said, Martin Luther King Jr. had his roots, not just as an African-American man in the South, but as someone who at an early age had met and, and entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, heard the message and became a carrier of the message. That Jesus Christ is all that matters. Not the color of their skin. So Jesus came. And when he spoke to a world that had just pretty much just as much racism and just as much discrimination and bigotry as we might experience now. He scandalized that. With his actions, with his teachings and with his behaviors. He talked about Samaritans which we won't go into now, but who were considered half-breeds, who were considered less they, they, compromisers. They were people who had sold out. They were people who were, who were seen as less than human in some circles. He had, relate, he had communications with women when no one would consider a woman to be someone on equal plane with a man. He had regular connections and went to parties and dinners and hung out with people with lifestyles that the religious community knew and were correct about, by the way, in saying that those lifestyles were not the direction of God. They were not pleasing God. And Jesus laughed with them, ate with them. There was not a single... You can look all through the Scriptures, all through the New Testament. Look at the life of Jesus Christ, and there's not a single difference in treatment He gives to anyone when it comes to how He valued them respected them, gave time to on the basis of race or position or education or background or what language they spoke or their wealth or their political view or their sin history. This is an internal equality, not the basis of laws. It's, a, it's an equality that comes because you recognize through a relationship with God who he really made you to be, how equal that is with everyone else. And so it's not just, the message is not just about equal rights. It's about equal respect. It's about equal relationship made available. James chapter 2 says, My brothers... As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Wait, think about that. Love your neighbor as yourself, regardless who the neighbor is. Jesus made that very clear when he told a story about the Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? If you do that, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Can I just ask you a pointed question? not based on what you would say externally, not based on even your behaviors, internally in your heart. Who do you have an existing bias against? Can I go out on a limb and agree with Avenue Q people that you have them? There are, there are, I, I, I have had to look at my own life this week, and I grew up, I was born in a melting pot. There was, I was not in the majority in the, in the neighborhood I was from. I was called names by people, but I saw the kids all get together. I grew up not understanding the difference until we moved to Indiana. And then I saw something that just blew me away. And I 
was very proud of myself in saying, I can't believe the rednecks here and what they have to say. I can't believe the rednecks here and what they have to say. And I realized that my bias formed against the rednecks, I called them. There's a devalue that's happened in my heart that I have to deal with. And it may be that you look at red-haired people or left-handed people. But it might be that you look at people with different color skin or with a different dialect, different culture. People who don't smell like you or have the same personal hygiene you have. People whose sexual attractions are different than yours. People whose grammatical pronunciations aren't exactly what you want them to be. Let this be a place where we present God's truth without compromise. And we call on people whose lifestyles do deviate from God's ways. We call them into the light. We call them to see see a better life. We call them to repentance without qualification, yes. But where we embrace and welcome and respect and honor Include in our circle those who are different from us. That's a message that continues to be a battle. Now, you may have come today and said, that's probably what you would have expected to hear. Okay? But you know what? There's a whole lot more that we want to talk about today. Beyond just racial reconciliation and beyond bigotry and prejudice. Because there's something else that ties in with that. That comes out of the life of Martin Luther King Jr. in the film, but comes out of the Word of God. And it has to do with how things like that happen. We're going to use the word leader for the rest of the time today. And I will tell you, I got, I got this fair warning. This, I get passionate about this. Because part, part, partially because of my own life and position. Partially because my, my studies focused my 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 degree focus was actually in the development of leadership and so it gets my attention but also because i am one who will say that we are paying a huge price in families and in culture and in the local church for the lack of this element the true leader the godly leader I'm going to give you an outline that I use when I've done actually some seminar type of stuff on this, teaching on leadership in various places. And I want to tie in what you see in the film of Martin Luther King, look at his life, but then look at Jesus and the call of the Word of God. And so I sometimes call them the five C's of leadership or sailing the seas. Get that? Sailing the seas. Okay. Of a godly leader. Those five C's include this. This is not exhaustive, but these are the things that keep coming out of the Word of God. It, that, that a godly leader is somebody who has a cause worth pursuing, somebody who has a clear plan for achieving that goal, somebody who has the charisma and the credibility to inspire people to come with them on that path, somebody who has the commitment to stay on purpose in the face of pain or opposition or failure, and somebody who has the character behind it to take people in a way that shows them that they work harder than anybody, that they are humble in their leadership, that they are willing to suffer. We're going to come back and look at each of those. And I want you to see some examples, both from the Word of God and from illustrated from the life of Martin Luther King. First of all, a cause worth pursuing. We need a leader. We need leaders who do this. Not just that they have a cause, but is a cause worth pursuing. It's a vision, a, a cause is, a, is a, a, a vision of a preferable future or a preferable state. That's something that is worth living for and worth paying a price for, maybe worth dying for. And something, as a godly leader, something that is rooted and sourced in God's truth. Not my idea of what should happen, but God's idea of what should happen. It is something that is so resolute, they say, this is something that has to be done. This is, this is a cause that I cannot not follow. I cannot not pursue. You pick that up a little bit 
in a call that went out from Martin Luther King and his statements on the steps before the, the march. T- take a look. Yes, ma'am. How are you? What is your name and where are you from, sir? My name is James Reed. I come from Boston. Tell why have you traveled here? I heard about the attack of innocent people who just want their rights, and I couldn't just stand by when Dr. King put out that call to clergy. I, I couldn't. The president of the lot of people who have got a cause that they're pursuing the question is is a cause worth pursuing is it a cause that comes from the creator a cause that represents who he made us to be and what's important in life a whole lot of us have got a cause our cause is to make enough money to retire our, our cause is to make our life easier, to make sure we've got a television that allows us to move from one room to the next without having to stop the show We've got a cause. For a whole lot of us as parents, we've got a cause, which is to make my kids behave just so I don't have to be bothered all the time by them. Make life a little bit more pleasant around me. That's our cause. But a leader, a godly leader, is someone who sees a cause beyond themselves. It is a cause that is worth pursuing. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. It is sourced in God's character and his truth. That's why you hear passion in places like Philippians chapter 3 when Paul says, therefore, or no, this is Hebrews, I'm sorry, the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a cause worth pursuing. If you're in the, in the New Testament, if you were in Galatians, just a few pages to the right, you'll find Philippians, the epistle of Philippians, where Paul writes this. Listen to his passion in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, dung piles, that means. Compared to this cause that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness comes from God and it's by faith. I want to know Christ. I want to have the power of his resurrection in my life. I want to share in this this fellowship of his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's a cause. See, you have a picture. You see a picture of something. A preferable state of how things could be and it grabs you. Do you know that in 1963, Martin Luther King did the famous speech, the I have a dream speech. Do you know that that phrase wasn't even in his written speech? He was standing there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial talking to thousands of people about the civil rights movement and the rights of equal rights being the law of the land. And while he's in the middle of his passion, Mahalia Jackson, who's a gospel singer at the time, shouts out to him. She, she, they, they had spent time working on the same causes together. And she says to him, tell him about your dream. Tell him about your dream. He stops in the middle. And the, the part that you always hear was not even in his script. But the reason it came out was because he already had seen it in his mind's eye. He had shared that he had. And then he says, all right, here is my dream. Here is the picture. Here's what it will look like. Here's what it could look like. It is a cause that is outside myself. It is a cause that's not for my benefit. Can I just read you Matthew 4 when Jesus is calling his disciples to his cause? 
This is Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Here's his cause. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. And he's walking along the side, beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They're casting it into the lake, for they were fishermen. Here's what he says to them. Come, follow me, he said. I will make you fishers of people. I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets, and they followed him. There's a fixed focus that says, this is why I live. This is beyond myself. Can I just ask you, do you have a cause? Very few people embrace that. Let's go on. Here's the next C. Godly leaders also, they don't just have a cause. They have a clear plan a means by which that cause will be achieved. So it's not just about emotion. It's not just about shouting and cheering. It's, it's not just about sentiment or rhetoric. It's not just about complaining about the way things is. There is a plan. There is a strategy. There are steps in order. So it's not just about what needs to happen or what could happen, but how it's going to happen. In this, in the following clip from, from the film, Martin Luther King is, is talking to leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Commission, which was a powerful young people's group in the South. SNCC, they called it. And they had their ways of doing stuff, but he comes in to explain what the way is to move toward his passion. Listen to what he has to say. I don't have time for this. None of us have time for this. John, you The way our organization works is straightforward. We negotiate, we demonstrate, we resist. And on our best days, our adversary helps the matter by making a mistake. Now, I know we all understand that you young people believe in working in the community long term, doing the good work to raise black consciousness. It's good grassroots work. I can't tell you how much we admire that. But what we do is negotiate, demonstrate, resist. David Elstein, who is a reviewer, said of this film, Martin Luther King had a dream. The way it's projected here, Selma makes it plain that if we that if that were all he had, he wouldn't have led his people across those bridges and up that mountaintop. He also had to be a player. He had to have a plan. Steps to take. It's not just the what, it's the how. In Luke 10, Jesus tells us, sends his disciples out to do exactly what he came to do. Here's the cause. He sends, you don't have to look, but you can look it up in Luke 10. He says, go out. We're going to go out and we're going to tell people this message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's that same message. Then he says, when you go, he gives them very clear directions. What to take, where to go, what villages. He sends them in twos. He says, if you go into place, look for what he calls a man of peace, somebody who will welcome you that can become a starting point. It's a strategic plan. When you're not responded to, you shake the dust off your feet, you move to the next village. A clear plan is something that a true leader has. Why do you had a who are Ohio State fans, had a really good week. Right, I'm going to throw you a bone. There's, he's, Urban Meyer's been on David Letterman. He's getting blue-chip recruits now. There's something that has been said about him for a long time as a leader. Same phrase gets used. It caught my attention this week about this. Michael Bennett, who's a player, was quoted saying, Something he said since he's been here is, the plan is infallible. If you follow the plan, it works. It's been proven to work everywhere I've gone. Cornerbacks coach Kerry Coombs. That's why he, we win, he said. The plan is infallible. It's detailed. It's organized. It's well thought out. He is so diligent about the now. He has a 365-day plan, but he is about the now, meaning living it out in that moment. God calls Joshua. Moses is dead. He calls Joshua to lead the people in the promised land. 
And he doesn't just say, okay, give it your best effort. There's a vision. There's a, there, there's a cause. But he says, now I'm going to give you part of the plan. He calls him aside and he says this, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous and be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Here's the plan. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left and you'll be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be careful to do everything written in it and then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged because Yahweh, your God, will be with you wherever you go. I always get nervous when we do what we're going to do in just a few weeks. We're going to have a vision night here. We've been telling you about it if you've been around. Sunday night in just a few weeks. I get nervous, but I get excited. Because we feel like God has called us as a body here to make impact. He has given us a cause. And when we get to that place like that, it's time to say, okay, what's the plan? And I would encourage you and invite you and ask you to pray for myself for our pastors, for our elders, as we say, God, we want to know your plan. But there are strategic steps that we're going to invite people to follow, to go this, because if you don't have a plan, you're not a true leader. Here's the third one. I'm going to use the word charisma, not just because, not slick-talking charisma, or just the capacity to inspire. And credibility, put these two together, because what this is is the capacity to motivate movement in other people to come along on that path and doing so from a platform of respect martin luther king jr worked with varying groups there were all kind of splintered groups everything from malcolm x to the the student leadership groups there's all kinds of groups but he more than anyone else coalesced those groups he was able to convince them to come where he was going he was bold in it he was confident in what he did he was astute but there was more than that because he wasn't just loud. That doesn't happen just because somebody is loud. Or it doesn't just happen because they're courageous. It doesn't just happen because they have charm. It doesn't even happen just because they're right. You know where it comes from? It comes because they've earned the respect of the people they're calling. They've created a platform from which to speak. There's trust developed. If you've got the New Testament open, you can take a look in the book of Mark. It's right toward the front of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. I, oh, you know what? I'm going to show it to you. Here we go. You can still look it up. It's good to do. Mark chapter 1. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach the people. Okay, there are thousands of teachers. But something was different. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. And then it gets contrasted and not like they're teachers of the law who didn't have authority. Those were people in positions of leadership, right? But there was a credibility that came out of Jesus. I don't believe that was just because Jesus was, happened to be the Messiah, the Son of God, happened to be an all-knowing part of the Godhead. Jesus expressed himself in ways that led to decisions. Now, let, let me just read for you Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. Again. You heard this, but listen again. He, he preached, that repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. As he's walking along beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. And he says to them, come and follow me. I have a plan and I will make you fishers of men. And then it says, after the, they came and left, he sees two other brothers. They're in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. They immediately left their boat and their father and and followed him. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over. There was something that was true about him. He was establishing credibility in his message. You You want to know if you're a leader right now? Here's the simple way they tell you. If you want to know if you're a leader, turn around. Is anybody following you? If they're not, 
You're not a leader. You don't, you're not a leader because you, get a, you ask for a position or a title. I, I need a place at a table somewhere in order to be a leader. You're a leader because it comes out of a credibility from your life. It's not presumed. It's not demanded. It's earned. And it's earned by simply pursuing the path you're going with the same passion, but with the respect that people look at you and they say, there's something worth hearing this is worth going to there's something authoritative in what is in the way this person is going here's here's the the fourth c commitment which is that which that stays in pursuit of that cause in the face of pain in the face of opposition and even in the face of failure a true godly leader doesn't give up the path they're on because it gets discouraging, because it's frustrating or hard, because it doesn't get re- results or rewards right away. Watch this encounter. Martin Luther King has been arrested. He's in jail with one of his cohorts, a good friend of his, and they have a conversation. I'm told that this is very close there's a lot of liberties that are taken in movies like this but this one i'm told is very similar to a conversation that actually happened matches it pretty well and he look he's honest he's frustrated he's having second thoughts and listen to what he's told take a look You live in an instant results-oriented world where people fire head coaches after a year of failure to where people get demoted in jobs, where people give up on plans. A true leader, a godly leader, is somebody whose cause is so profound and strong and, com- and important to them that they make a commitment that says, I will not give up this 
path. I will stay with it. I deal, I I actually have a lot of opportunity to hang out with other church planters, having been one, having been in a church plant that failed, having been here and seeing people, but not just church planters, pastors in general who work with churches who get frustrated and beat up and tired and the average senior pastor lasts about three and a half to four years in a place and they feel called by God to somewhere else. Can I tell you, there's not a lack of leadership in the body of Christ. People who say this is not about whether it works right away. There's a commitment that gets made. It's, it's reflected in the words of Paul. I already read you the first part of this. Listen to what he continues to say in Philippians chapter 3. You can take a look if you're there. Philippians 3 verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. There's one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you're mature, you understand, he said, goes on to say. That is true in, your, in outreach to people who don't know him yet, if they haven't responded. That's true if you're a parent of a child whose life isn't going the way that you envisioned it would go, and you feel like you've lost control, or you don't think it's going to work, or it hasn't worked. When you feel like you've lost all hope in that way, it happens in ministries. Can I say this to those of you in whatever realm you're in where you have been facing setbacks and disappointments and even major failures, do not lose heart in it. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Keep your eye on the prize. God's word constantly reminds us of that. Andrew Harry, who uh, commented on Martin Luther King's uh, story here said, said, this is his summary, a historical turning point was reached by a bunch of short-sighted people all looking out for their own interests with at the center of the storm one man and one movement who kept their eyes on the prize. Hebrews puts it this way, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4 puts it this way, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. He repeats it later, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day because our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's a commitment a godly leader holds that. One more, I've got to go fast. Here it is, but this is too important to go too fast in. The last C is character. See, there's a difference between a leader. There are a lot of people who are leaders, effective leaders for certain causes, but there's a difference between a leader and a godly leader, a leader that follows the way prescriptions that God has for that role. Because a godly leader is different than a whole lot of some leaders that you might have seen that the focus of their character comes out, a character of humility, a character of servanthood. It's, comes, it's, it's displayed in lots of ways, but Alison Wilmore, who's a critic, wrote, wrote this about the, the film. You've already seen it, but maybe you'll notice it even in this next shot, the last one we're going to show you, I think. That the director frequently frames Martin Luther King Jr. from behind the camera's gaze into the back of his head and shoulders. It symbolizes his remove, King's awareness of the kind of symbol he's become. Whether giving an impassioned speech or getting punched by a waiting white man when checked into a hotel, he and his wife Coretta discuss his self-consciousness about dressing in a way or owning things that would make him look above his followers because there is character at the heart of his leadership. There's a character that says a handful of things are true. It's displayed in his work ethic. A true godly leader understands that the leader is going to work harder than anybody else who's beside him. That a leader is going to suffer. There's a universal truth about God that if you want to be a leader, every true leader of God, all through the scripture, every last one of them, they suffered more than their followers do. It's displayed in a humility Here's the thing, leaders step forward 
to absorb when when it's time for blows to be absorbed. And they step backward when it's time to receive the benefits. It's counter to everything our culture teaches. And this is what Martin Luther King, how it's depicted in the film. Take a look at this clip. I'm going to get something in the body else. I want to live long and be happy. But I'm not going to focus on what I want today. I'm going to focus on what God wants. We're here for a reason. To many, many songs. But today, the sun is shining, and I'm about to stand in this warmth alongside a lot of freedom loving people who worked hard to get us here. I may not be with them for all the sunny days to come, but as long as there's light ahead for them, it's worth it to me. Luke 22. A dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, Kings of the Gentiles, lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Because who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The character of Jesus is, and the character of a godly leader is, somebody who does not lead in order to place themselves and their agenda in the forefront. They, They do not worry about whether they will experience the fruits of their labor, even in their lifetime. Hebrews 11 tells the whole story about heroes of faith and say most of them never lived to see the results of what they were leading for. A leader is one whose character works harder than anybody else, suffers more than anybody else, and whose humility steps forward when it's time to take the blows and backwards when it's time to receive the praise. These five qualities, can I tell you why they're so rare? Because it defies logic to be a leader who does those things. There is no reward on earth that's worth the price that gets paid most times. But all five of those, I believe, are absolutely essential for somebody to be a godly leader. We have seen examples of those who have charisma without character. We've seen examples of those who have a cause but without a commitment to follow through. We've seen examples of those who have a plan for something, but don't have any credibility in that plan. Can I just ask you which of those five God might be wanting to develop in you? Because God has made it clear, Romans 12, if a man's gift is leadership, let him govern diligently. There's a crying need for that. I say this with passion because... There's a desperate part of my soul that wants to be that kind of leader. Not for all the things that my flesh crave to be accomplished for it, but simply because there is a God who calls us to a purpose that is worth dying for, worth living for, worth leading for. I want to be that kind of leader if I would be allowed We need leaders. Guys, we need leaders in your high school, among the students. We need godly leaders in your college. We need leaders in your place of work. We need leaders in your neighborhood. We need leaders here. Those five marks... Would you ask God to develop them in you? Can I tell you that I've said this before in other places, but I want to say it to you. There are a whole lot of sad verses in the Bible, but this one 
has impacted me more than most others. I consider this one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It's an old, obscure verse in the book of Ezekiel where the prophet Ezekiel is talking about the fall of God's kingdom, the God, his, of the nation of Israel, and how their priests had gotten corrupt and their politicians had gotten corrupt. And, and, and the, the whole place had... God says he didn't want them to have to go be punished and to be carried into exile. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 22:30. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. In our culture, in our world right now, you and I have been placed. I believe with everything in me that God is looking for that kind of a person in different realms. And the question he has for us is, will there be someone who will be that leader? Pray with me. We know it's a a matter of historical record, God, that Martin Luther King Jr. suffered greatly. He was opposed. He was attacked personally. And then his life was taken from him before he even turned 40. He was a flawed man, I'm sure, and he struggled. But it illustrates something for us. That there is a price tag worth paying For those who would step up and say, I want to be God's man or woman. To whatever degree I'm called by him. And so, God, I want to ask for me personally, but us. You would raise up godly leaders. You would raise up those who would be willing to pay the price. Who would abandon their own personal causes for your cause who would stick with the plan and have a plan and make a commitment to it and would lead others and influence others with their passion and with their credibility so that eternal things happen, so that heaven is peopled with those who wouldn't have come otherwise but who responded to the movement and the call and the leadership of those around them. Make that true in us. And lead us so that we can lead others to know you. We pray through your son. Amen.